Welcome to the Pivoting Out of Education podcast, where hosts Drs. Jamie Hoffman and Tom Studdard will share their stories of folks who have left campus-based positions in education and K-12 to leverage their skills in other contexts. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the average person holds 12 jobs between the ages of 18 and 50. Educators, like Jamie and Tom, often enter their careers thinking they will stay in education forever, perhaps because they're trained to think that way, or perhaps it is hard to see other pathways. Both of your hosts pivoted out of campus-based positions and are loving it. Now they want to give back and support others trying to do the same. Thanks for listening in and enjoy today's episode of the Pivoting Out of EDU podcast. Hello and welcome back to Pivoting Out of EDU. I'm Jamie Hoffman. And I'm Tom Stutter. And we are here today with one of my favorite people and mentors, Melora Sunt. And so excited to have you on the podcast to share your experiences. I do want to share with everybody that I mentioned this in my hostful episode, but when asked sort of what strategies I used and what were the keys to my pivot, I was just like, well, I'm really thankful for Dr. Melora Sunt because she had confidence in me and saw in me things that I needed someone to illuminate and believe in me. And that's kind of what what led to me being in this space. So I'm very, very thankful for that. And great to have you here to talk about your own experiences. So with that, if you could please get started and just give folks an idea of what you did, although you've done quite a lot, but what did you do in campus-based positions prior to leaving campus-based positions? Great, thank you. Well, I started in student affairs. In residential life, I was a hall director, an area coordinator, was pretty excited that you could move around the country and work at different campuses as long as they had a strong residential life system. I moved from that into the Dean of Students office, did a lot of student conduct work, and then I shifted over into a faculty role, changed institutions. I I went from UCLA to USC, the Rossier School of Education, and I started- Crosstown rivals, that's tough. Yes, seven miles (laughs) apart. I started out doing admissions and running the student affairs unit for the School of Education. But then uh, two years into it, we got a new dean and she looked to do an administrative reorganization and she created some associate dean positions. And I shifted over into a faculty role and took one of those positions. And I worked with her through the 20 years or so that she was the dean of the School of Ed. And so I had a faculty position that whole time and was teaching, taught mostly in the student affairs master's program. And then then most of my time was spent with the doctoral programs. And when I left USC, I had spent a number of years as the executive vice dean. So I was managing most of the internal functions. So faculty affairs, the student affairs, admissions, academic programs, continuing ed, all all of those functions except for development. And in the course of doing that, I had the good fortune, I guess, at the time it felt like maybe not so good fortune, but we decided that we were going to take one of our degree programs online. And this was about 15 years ago. And 
we had met John Katzman. John was the founder of the Princeton Review and he was starting up, he had left the Princeton Review and he was starting up an online company to help universities put programs online. And we were gonna be his first client with our Master of Arts in Teaching program. And because of my role as an administrator, the executive vice dean over all of the academic programs, I got tapped to be the chair of the design committee, which if you think about it, was completely out of my wheelhouse in terms of, I came out of higher ed student affairs, knew nothing about teacher preparation. Uh, it was actually the best decision the dean could have made for me in terms of stretching me. So it gave me a chance to work with two other wonderful faculty members who knew a lot about teacher preparation. Uh, and we as a tiny design team worked with John's fledgling company to build this Master of Arts in Teaching program. And so I was learning about curriculum and program development and teacher preparation and what could happen online. And initially I thought, this is a really bad idea. How could you possibly prepare teachers to teach online? And I said so to John and he said, well, what's been your experience with online education? And, and actually the only thing I had done at the time was traffic school and I thought it was flat and boring. And I thought this was just going to ruin the brand of the university and why on earth would we do this? And he said quite candidly in his normal way, you haven't kept up with what's been happening online. Uh, let me show you. And so I got to start working with learning designers. I had never worked with learning designers before. You know, think of all the courses I had had to create, but never once with any kind of formal instruction on curriculum development. And it was the most creative, most fun experience I'd had in my career. And I really got back into teaching and thinking about design and thinking about how we make the student experience come together. And it was a wonderful blending of all of my prior experience. So I went on to do that and then got a grant that let me go to the US Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, working in the unit that actually approves medicines and vaccines to help them move their internal training online. And this was through a connection I had with a former graduate student. I did that for two years. So I stepped away from my role at USC, physically moved to the FDA, was in residence with them as an educator, and then spent two years doing that with them. So when I finished the two years with the Food and Drug Administration, or let me say, as I got into the second year of it, I knew I was going to have to figure out what I wanted to do. And I had realized from the opportunity of working with this actually wonderful federal agency that there was life outside the university. And the organizational culture I'd come to know and be familiar with and work with at the university wasn't the only way there was to, to work. And I was interested by that. And I realized, I don't know that I can go back to doing the same thing. I was doing a lot of problem solving and helping faculty and, you know, enough said there, I think, in terms of some of the challenges that you run into. And I just didn't have the energy to continue doing that. And I thought, oh my gosh, I, I have been the, the, the primary salary earner of our family, my entire career, we've got a mortgage, you know, we're, we're used to a relatively expensive lifestyle. I can't not work and I can't work cheap. And so I've got to figure out what the heck am I going to do? 
And so I started looking around and John came back into the picture, John Katzman, we had stayed in touch and he invited me to meet him in DC for breakfast. That's where I was living at the time. I told the Dean I was taking a breakfast meeting with John. I didn't want her to worry and I didn't want to be thought of as doing anything behind her back. And she was extremely supportive. And I was going into this breakfast thinking, John has a lot of wonderful ideas, but there's no way I'm, I'm leaving a university. I don't know what he's going to talk to me about, but I don't think I could, you know, go work for a company outside the university. And he told me he had started a new company, different business model, different focus. And he wanted me to be the chief academic officer for this company. And something clicked in that conversation. I don't know how to explain it, but I walked into that meeting thinking, John's a nice friend. I, I'm going to have an interesting conversation with him, but nothing's going to come of it. And I left it thinking, I can do this. I'm, I think I'm actually going to leave university work. Holy cow. And so here I am working for Noodle. I'm in my fourth year now. What I love about that is, is what you're highlighting, which is different than a lot of our other guests who, you know, some of them sort of went racing out of higher education uh, or out of particularly out of campus-based positions. Some of them sort of put their foot out there. But what I love about your story is that you didn't think that that's what your future held. And yet the path sort of was opened up and you took that leap of faith. And I think for a lot of our listeners, that's going to be, that's going to resonate because they may not necessarily be thinking, oh, I'm ready to pivot now, or, oh, I can't imagine myself out of a campus-based position, but that there's opportunities out there that if we let the door open and we walk through it, Jamie mentioned, you know, in her episode, the glowing door that was sort of calling her name to walk through. And, and that, that door was there. Malora, son. <laughs> <laughs> that door was there for me too. And sometimes it's important to sort of recognize that that door is glowing and that it's okay to take that meeting and it's okay to maybe walk through that door. So I, I think that that story is going to be unique and, and really speak to our listeners. I'm curious, Melora, what strategies did you use to pivot? You know, as you, you know, you made the decision, I'm going to, I'm going to leave this campus-based position. I'm going to go be the chief academic officer. What strategies were you using as you made that transition and, and also allowed you to sort of think, yeah, I can do this. I think the primary one is relationship building that I, I'm not a glad hander and I'm folks who know me know I I'm pretty introverted, so I'm not out there schmoozing a lot, but it is important to stay in touch with people who work in a variety of areas because you just never know. Like in this case, it was fortuitous that I was ready for a transition and John needed a particular skill set. So to just stay in touch with, with those colleagues and friends that are, are working different institutions, different disciplines, different organizations, just to see, because you don't know. And I, I have to say, too, that I came from a place where there was a pretty strong bias about anything outside of the university as not being noble, not being good, you know, in a way. and. It, it took a little while to break myself of that as well. You know, I, I remember even as we were building the last online degree program that I worked on, which was an EDD in organizational change and leadership. And the, the thrust of that degree was to 
focus on how what we know about learning can help improve human performance in any setting, not just a school, but in organizations, in the military. And so we were purposefully trying to attract students from outside of higher education. And there was a lot of flack for doing that. Certain faculty were, were pretty critical about why would we want to try and help a for-profit organization perform better? Like we need to focus our energy on school. They need our help. And, and trying to see this as it's not an either or, and that by reaching outside of higher ed, we can build allies for education. I mean, that's where the money is. So if we could create more allies, we can get better access, more scholarships, that kind of thing. So it, it took a little bit for me to, to get over that idea too, that, I mean, one of the things John said to me was, this is a startup. You know, I was maybe employee number 10 for this organization. And so not only were you leaving higher ed, but you're going into something that hasn't been created yet. And I, I nodded my head, uh-huh, yep, a startup, I get it. And realizing I knew absolutely nothing about what he was talking about. And thank goodness he hired a whole lot of really smart people. And, you know, what a, what a wonderful learning experience and wild ride this has been. So it's, it's been all about trying new things. So in terms of my adjustment, I, I never had a total loss of faith in myself that, oh my gosh, I can't do this. I, I, given what he was telling me he needed done, which is help us help universities build online programs. I know how to work with faculty generally, and, and I had been doing it and I had been teaching for decades and the last decade had been online. And I felt pretty comfortable that, that I could help. And so that didn't feel scary to me, but getting in the room with folks who had been with him at the Princeton Review and been with him at his first company, and then now have come with him to this company, they knew what they were doing, you know, in terms of the talk about finances and the talk about investors. And the, I was like, the, the who, the what, the, <laughs> how does this work? And not wanting to ask questions initially, because you're worried maybe you're going to come off as, did we make a mistake <laughs> hiring her? They, they, yeah, they never made me feel that way, but it was a huge learning curve. Well, Melora, what I want to do is, is sort of go back a little bit. So we talked about your background and particularly at USC and, you know, full transparency, all three of us have a little bit of a USC connection, uh, whether it was working there or having gone to school there. And then you pivoted out, but, you know, you mentioned that you're the chief academic officer at Noodle. What does that mean? I think a lot of people who are listening might think chief, chief academic officer, that sounds like an academic title. That sounds like a title that might be at a university, but what does that mean for, for you and for Noodle and, and maybe even more broadly, maybe for like the startup culture? So when you think about an organization, uh, businesses, organizational structure, you've got the president and then you've got a bunch of chiefs, the chief executive officer, the chief operating officer, the chief technology officer, I'm the chief academic officer. Now, I got to define that role, but the fundamentals were already set in place. And that was to head up the team of people responsible for creating the entire student experience with the core of that being the courses that students are gonna be engaging in. But something that I, I have said from the beginning with John and he has been right there is that this has to be about the entire ecosystem. This isn't just about classes. This is about what happens to students when they're outside of class and how do we create these virtual environments that support students moving all the way through their degree programs. So 
so I help our partnership team cultivate relationships with universities. They, they will sometimes bring me or now some of my colleagues in to talk directly with faculty who are considering working with us. I help deans or pro faculty program directors navigate some of the skinned knees parts of putting a program online and working with faculty who may not think this is a good idea. And then work with learning design firms to help develop those courses at the faculty's direction. And we establish the rubrics that set the criteria standards for this. And then I, I think I made the brilliant decision to hire Jamie and Jamie's looking over the whole ecosystem part of this thing. So all the student support and all the student services and you know, sort of persuading, cajoling universities that graduate students who are online need as much support as your undergraduates. And how are we going to do that effectively online? And, and oh, by the way, could we even think about this blended ecosystem where it really doesn't matter if you're online or on ground, you've got access to all the same wonderful activities and events and services and relationships. So that's what I spend my time thinking about. So reflecting back, I know what I think is going to be great is that folks listening, they may have experience more on the academic side and be curious from your perspective, what are some of the things that you're missing from being in a campus-based position, but what are you enjoying being out of a campus-based position? Certainly, I know you're working adjacent to education, but still not quite the same. So it would be great if you could share that. A lot of the folks that we've had on have primarily had student affairs experience. So I think that hearing your perspectives will be valuable for, for those folks from the academic side too. There are a number of things I really love about this work. One is I get to work with universities, but I don't actually work for a university. So I'm not responsible for the day-to-day the faculty team building, that's not exactly the right word, but you know, moving the school forward, that's not on me. It's on somebody else, but I'm there to help them. And so I don't have that, that what could at times be just pretty overwhelming responsibility. You know, the folks that are doing the day-to-day -day at the university are, there's a lot riding on what's happening now. And, and I'm grateful that that's not on me right now. The, the other thing that I, another thing I like a lot is working remotely. I've worked remotely from the beginning. The, the central office for Noodle is in New York. It's in Manhattan. I'm in Los Angeles and John was fine with that. He's like, if you want a space in Los Angeles, we'll create an office. And I said, heck no. Have you seen the traffic? And nobody's going to want to commute and <laughs> forget it. <laughs> it takes uh, an hour to get anywhere in LA, right. even if it's a few miles away. Exactly. So I, I love working remotely and, and the pandemic created some interesting challenges around that, but it's good. And I travel a ton or I used to because I would go to campuses and, and help in the early days. And I would go in the early days when we were helping set up the relationships and the programs and orienting the faculty. I, I haven't traveled in a year and that that's strange, but I also have a more national focus now than I ever did working at a university where you want to think nationally, but you're really focused on your campus and your region. And now I'm thinking about what am I seeing across all of our campuses across the country? And then, you know, even internationally, what are the, what are the trends? And I feel a responsibility to be thinking about how do we, what's coming next and what do we have to be ready for and how can we help improve this entire learning experience online? 
So it's a very different kind of focus. What I find interesting, Melora, is that you talk a lot about sort of this, the, the differences there. And, and yet I also hear a lot of similarities to some of the things that, you know, the, the, that our folks who are on a campus either have responsibilities for or have oversight of. And I'm curious, how did you, you know, your situation is a little bit different, but maybe from an advice perspective, how do you encourage folks to talk about the transferability of their skills? And not only how did you do it, because it wasn't a jump from particularly, you know, this established university in Los Angeles to a startup company. How did you transfer it? But then how, what advice would you have for people who are getting ready to do that? How do they talk about those, those skills and that transferability? There is a lot there. So, so the first is to think about what matters most to you, your values, and what you're looking for is a fit. And that fit could come in any kind of organization. It could be a university, it could be a for-profit organization, it could be a nonprofit organization. But you wanna look at who you're gonna be working with, get to know about as much as you can about what's important to them, what's important to the organization and decide, is that someplace you could work? It, it, because at the end of the day, if, if you don't have respect for your supervisor or for the steps the company is taking and the decisions that are being made, you're gonna be miserable no matter, no matter where you are. So some, some reflection I think is, is one of the first things to think about and then think about what, you're, what you enjoy doing most. For me, it's making things. And I've kind of come down to that, that I, I like being creative. And that's what that experience 15 years ago, building my first online course made me realize was this is kind of fun. So if I could do that for work, that would be really exciting. So getting clear for yourself about that. And then I think a third one is understanding that the way universities work is distinct from the way almost any other organization works <laughs> in terms of governance structures, how decisions get made, the pace of work, and to be ready for things to be different and, and not to think that because it was done this way at the university, this is the right way to do it. I have learned so much about effective goal setting and metrics and measuring the performance of the organization and pivoting as you need to in a way that makes me think, wow, we almost looked asleep at the wheel at the university. And I don't mean that as a, as a negative thing about the universities I worked with or, or any of that. It's just a different pace. And so it's not that one is better than another. It's just different. And so I had to be ready for the accelerated pace. And I, was, I used to think I was busy and I, I was busy, right? But I am very differently busy now. <laughs> Yeah, the fast paces of startup life and even, you know, sort of a couple of years post startup life, you know, I tell people all the time, my, my day is very different, but it is very fast. And what that allows us to do is innovate really quickly. You know, decisions aren't tied up in committees about committees, but at the end of the day, like, you know, I put out into the world sort of, you know, MVPs or, or minimum, minimally viable products. And then we reiterate, or we iterate on that, we iterate on that, and we iterate on that. When I was working at USC, you know, and, and I was in the orientation office, we didn't put out something that wasn't perfect. perfect. You know, the, the students and the parents who were paying, you know, gob sums of money would not allow us to have anything that was below perfect, nor would the university leadership because of the sort of the reflection on the brand that it was. 
but here I am now, and I get a sense that you're, you experienced something similar is let's get it out there. Let's, and then let's iterate on it because better to have something out there that's good and iterate to get it to better than have something that just sits on the shelf for 10, 15 years while we try to make it perfect. Exactly. Yes. Yes. And how important it is to use your colleagues around you to, you know, if you can do a first draft and put it out there for feedback, that's that's really the way things are working for me and for, for our teams, I think, now. And if I had to sit there and perfect it myself and take as long as it would take, we would just never move forward. So so that for sure. And then, you know, you said something about MVP. Something else I find I do, which is a skill others for sure can do, is I help my company understand universities. If you've not worked at one, they can be really puzzling places. Like, why are they doing that? How come it's taking so long? What the heck, right? So helping and the notion of the MVP is something I've had to, or I've been trying to talk with my colleagues about that, especially in learning design, one of the, the biggest, you know, we get these flare-ups where the faculty get upset. They see something. It's not what they want. They're annoyed. It goes up through the program director to the dean, and suddenly we've got a fire, right? And oftentimes it boils down to silly things like grammar, punctuation, errors in, in drafts. And when I've talked with some of our firms, they'll say, well, it's an MVP, and we know their faculty member is going to want to change it, and we don't want to put a whole lot of time and money into making it perfect before it goes to the faculty member. And that's I've had these aha moments of oh no, MVP is not a word faculty understand. It's not the way they work. They work in the world of ideas. And so the technical presentation of the idea has to be perfect. You can't have grammatical, meaning you can't, it has to be technically correct. You can't have grammatical errors in it, right? Because they're going to wonder, do you not know these rules? And therefore, why am I working with you? Or, or are you careless and and why am I working with you right I'm invested in this and so I remember the registrar and and I I want to be clear that that I have been a faculty member and I say this with tremendous respect they are incredibly busy and and we can't waste their time with stuff with mistakes in it right we need to use their expertise to work on the ideas of that student experience not on the fact that, oh my gosh, they're correcting errors in the PowerPoint slide kind of thing. So a registrar at, at USC once said to me about, this is a long time ago when we had paper catalogs and I would argue with him about changes we were making to the degree program and I got to get it in the catalog. And he said, the catalog can be incomplete, but it can never be incorrect. And I thought, that's exactly what we have to do with the drafts going to faculty, right? They, it can be incomplete, but it can never be incorrect. So it's that moving back and forth between different cultures about how you do work and what's acceptable. And, and that's been a real straddling game. I absolutely love that phrase. It can be incomplete, but not incorrect. We have a we have a sign on the wall in our in our headquarters out in Portland that says perfect is the enemy of good. And now I want to change it to it, it can be incomplete, but it can't be incorrect because that's so right. You know, I know I get frustrated with our with our project management and our or our product management and our engineering teams when they deliver something that has bugs in it. It's like, wait, it has bugs in it, which means essentially that it's it's incorrect, but I'm okay with it being version one. And we just build on it for version two. So I love that. And I'm going to steal that. I hope that that's okay. Oh, yeah. 
But that's exactly how I think about it, right? It's missing this functionality, but the functionality that's there works. Exactly. Well, lots of great ways to think of the, the culture being different. And we are actually going to have an episode where we focus in on that. And I do think it's worth emphasizing one of the things you noted about how much you work now, because I do believe a lot of people assume that when they leave a campus-based position, they will work less. They will not work nights. They will not work weekends. And I, I think it is relevant to emphasize that it depends. Like if you go to a startup company and you're one of the few in the beginning, you're going to work nights and weekends. And depending on the level of position you have, obviously your ability is different. So you're going to work more often. I know that that's something that I mentioned to Tom. I will admit over the last four years, I work less nights and weekends than I did in the beginning because we've got more staffing resources and such. But you know, if folks are looking for more of a dial it in type job or a nine to five, they they should think about the age of the company as well as what position that they're they're looking to go into. I know I also I shared that I don't I mean, I I worked when I was in Hawaii. I mean, I didn't attend a lot of meetings, but I did some of the project based work just because like my kids were busy and I was like, oh, OK, I'll just work on this project I've been wanting to do. And so I haven't felt like it's been a drain that I've sort of been expected to do these things. Rather, I've enjoyed doing it. But I do think that is a relevant point to emphasize. I mean, you, and then the last question I'm going to ask you is what are you for self doing next? But I feel like on the heels of that, I want to be like, I hope you see yourself relaxing and, and getting some like time to travel or something like that, where you're not working so hard because I have seen you flying all over the country and responding to fires, quote unquote, fires on the weekends and nights and such. But what do you see next for yourself? Um, I don't know. Probably retiring eventually. I'm, I'm getting to be that age. My partner's already retired. We have aging parents and in-laws, some who live with us. So, you know, it's, it's gradually getting to be time, not in the immediate future, but I, I wanted to add to what you were saying about the work schedule, though, and, and say a couple of things. One is when you're thinking about the kind of organization and you know what does it mean to work in a startup, a lot of it, and Jamie, you might have been the one that introduced me to this metaphor, but the idea of do you want like super highways paved direction of where you want to go, or do you want to be out there cutting through the brush and figuring out yeah. where the road needs to be laid? And a startup is very much the first. And that was a bit of a transition for me is realizing when I would say, what's the policy for reimbursement on X? And they'd be <laughs> like, well, what do you think it should be? You know, we don't have it yet. So there was a lot of inventing going on. And for, the, for folks who are used to institutions that have been around for centuries that have these, as, as infuriating as they might be, these policies have been in place for a long time. You don't have to worry about it. That's something to think about. The other is going back to that notion of fit, that, that while there's a lot to do, I have found that my folks that I work with, my, my boss, John, they don't care when I'm working. They just want to get the job done. So if I need to step out and go do something, go do it. It's, it you're a grown-up. It's your time. And you're here because you're responsible enough to get the job done. And so I think that's what I really like about the remoteness is 
I'm not in an office from 8.30 to 5. I'm working whenever I need to be working. And sometimes, yeah, those are odd hours to get the job done. But there's so much trust coming throughout the organization that you do what you need to do to be at your maximum capacity and get the job done. It's wonderful. You know, I, I don't think I could go back to set office hours. I think I'd lose my mind. And I'm more productive as a result. And, and when the idea hits, then like you're in Hawaii and, and the idea comes to you, then you pull out your laptop and you start working on it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing your perspectives. Is there any last bit of advice that you would give for folks looking to do the pivot or, or just ways that you're, oh, you're open to them reaching out to you if they have questions? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to chat with anybody who's thinking about should I be considering going out into, especially the, the private sector, to work? And what is that like? And you know, your experience is going to vary tremendously about that issue of fit. Not all organizations are equal, and and it's important to to try and spend a little time with that organization to think: is this is this going to be right for me? Can I manage this? It's not, you know, it's not like diamonds and rainbows. It's it's a lot of work, but it can be incredibly rewarding if you find the right place. Agreed. Well, thank you so much for being willing to spend time with us today. I am sure folks will really enjoy and get a lot out of hearing your advice and your story. And for those of you listening, thank you so much for joining us. And don't forget to join us next week as we interview our next guest. As always, thank you to our guests for joining us. Additionally, special thanks to our sound editor, John Alexander. We spend one third of our life at work. It should be something we believe in and have a passion for. It's okay if that passion changes. If you are thinking about pivoting out of education or know someone who is, visit our website at pivotingoutofedu.com for advice, testimonials, and blog articles. Have advice to share or would like a private consultation? Contact Jamie or Tom via the website or at pivotingoutofedu at gmail.com.